Hello and welcome to Comics Over Time. This season, which we're calling Murdoch and Marvel, a history of Marvel Comics starring Daredevil, is our most ambitious project yet. Our plan is to look at the state of the comic book industry during a particular year, and then to examine in detail the major ways that Marvel Comics in particular evolved during that year. We'll look at who was creating comics, what new characters or storylines were introduced, and which comics either debuted or ended. After that, we'll get down to business, take out our stack of Daredevil comics, and look at what our old friend, the man without fear, was up to during that same time. We're glad you've joined us. My name is Dwayne, and with me as always, my good buddy Dan. Dan, how's it going this week? It is going really well. Having a great time lost in the 1960s with uh, a ton of comic books and comic book stories and comic book history. So, on last week's show, we actually discussed that long history of Marvel Comics, going back to the timely days from 1939 up until 1963, when the Marvel uh, Age of Superheroes had gotten rolling. This week, we're actually going to kind of finally settle into our regular weekly cadence, and uh, we're going to see where Stan, Jack, and the rest of the Marvel bullpen have been taking us in a single year. It's time to talk about 1964, and of course with it, the debut of the world's most interesting superhero, Daredevil. Yes, this is going to be very fun. Where, where should we start, Dan? Before we get too far into anything, I did want to note that we got a message from Sid over on Blue Sky noting that he enjoyed the show, uh, even though, as he says, Daredevil is just barely a top 10 character for him. That, Saw that. That's not that bad, actually. That's that's pretty no. solid. Um, there's a lot of characters in comic like, books. So There's like thousands of characters, so like, oh. if, he, if he ends up even in the bottom of the top 10, that's probably probably really good. That is very solid. So, very solid indeed. But, yeah, thanks for the, uh, the notes, Sid. Hope you're uh, continuing to enjoy the show and that you uh, join us and let us know where we're, where we're going right and wrong as we continue here through the years. The Year in Comics. All right, Dan, instead of going over like several years, we've just got one this week. It is 1964. There's a lot that's going on in the world, a lot that's going on in comics and Obviously, there's one big premiere in at Marvel that we're going to be talking about in in some detail a little later on. Yep. Yeah, but it really was an eventful year in America and, and around the world, of course. And although in, for the most part, comic books are somewhat insulated from politics this time, Comics Code Authority allows only so much to happen and the like, there's still a lot of the things that are happening in the world that do make their way into the comic books. And I think that there are a number of, of things from 1964 that we are actually going to see uh, sort of bubbling up here and there, not only in Marvel, but at other publishers. So one of the things is the Beatles, of course, appeared on Ed Sullivan's show and sort of Beatlemania took over America in 1964. Sure, sure, sure. Archie Comics, other comic books like Herbie. You've probably never heard of Herbie, but... Uh, uh, can't say that I have. No, numbers of comics actually had unauthorized Beatles appearances, so like Betty and Veronica hanging out, uh, listening to the to the Fab Four and the like. There's also an 
authorized, I think it's either Dell or, or Gold Key, doesn't authorized, I think it is Dell, version of a kind of a Beatles comic book that's probably their biggest seller that year. Things came out, for instance, called like Little Monsters, which played on sort of fads in, in other media like the Munsters and the Adams Family, kind of one of those horror family type books, right? Uh, okay. So you get a lot of things from that. There's still a lot of licensed sort of Western books and all that sort of stuff out there. We're also seeing an increase in war books. Um, as you've got now American involvement in Vietnam ramping up, you've got increasing, interestingly enough, a little bit some of the actual real war comics. For instance, there's a Captain Storm, which is about a PT boat captain. It's kind of reminiscent of JFK's memoirs and experiences with PT-109, that sort of thing. Okay. But also you've got Sad Sack having this resurgence. I don't know if you've ever read Sad Sack comic books. I'm unfamiliar. He's sort of like a Beetle Bailey type of Oh, character. okay. It's, I am familiar with Beetle Bailey. It's war humor, essentially, but they took it to an extreme. There's all sorts of Sad Sack. Even like Little Sad Sack, which is basically a kid who's going around being in the military sort of thing. And it's, it's sort That's of That's sort of weird. That's sort of weird. Yeah. There was a lot of that, though. And that was... <laughs> Uh, he, he crossed over with Richie Rich and, like, that sort of thing. Okay. There were comic books that even really hit some of the main political themes of the time in domestically. 1964 was the year that the Civil Rights Act was passed, which been a kind of a watershed in American politics and legal uh, history and the like. A number of comics dealt with race and racism, that year uh one of them that was interesting there's actually treasure chest comics published a 10-part story and it was actually the story of a political candidate running for the presidency that sort of told the whole story of how the political process works over a, a long-form series of issues okay. it was set in 1976 not in 1964 and the interesting thing is you didn't actually see the candidate really until the final issue and in the final issue, you see the candidate, and it turns out he's black. And so the readers have been following along with this character all this time, not knowing there's going to be this twist. And the final part of the story actually asks, you know, would he win? And it's this question of, by 1976, where's America going to be at, considering the changes we've had? Right, right. So some, some very interesting stuff there. We had companies like Charlton. Uh, who are starting to sort of try to get into the superhero business. They had some Blue Beetle stuff and other things. Their quality was always kind of questionable. I've, I've actually heard, and I don't know exactly how true this is, I can't remember where I got it from, but I remember hearing that Neil Adams actually dropped off his portfolio at Charlton around this time and was not given a job. And I can Ooh. only imagine how much, how much comic book history would have changed if... You know, Charlton would have just hired him and put him on anything, everything. Anything, yeah. Taken over the comic market, pretty much. So, but uh, I actually had a couple of books. I, I used to like some of their stuff. Uh, there was one called Sergeant Steel that was sort of a detective kind of, of book back then. I right. really enjoyed it. It had some Dick Giordano art, who was an artist I, I've always liked. 
I have no idea how that comic book would hold up today because I haven't read it in probably 35 or 40 years. Right. It's probably one of those things that's kind of like Dukes of Hazard. It's just best never to go back and enjoy your happy memories of it. Yeah. But, uh, I made the mistake of trying to watch another one of those recently and late late you know, 70s, not... early 80s, you know, Three's Company, all this stuff. It does not hold up. Not in, great. In times. Not great. So, but... Outside of that, we got some cool things going on. James Warren actually brings out a new magazine called Creepy. Because of the Comics Code Authority, we don't have a lot of real uh, horror and, and sort of more adult horror type stories. Uh, grown up, real you know gore or, or some actual violence. Creepy is put out as a magazine style, 35 cent book. And so it comes back to really having the closest thing to like an EC style of comic books. That we've had since the 50s. Uh, Creepy is something that went on to sort of inspire a bunch of other different things and, and find its way around. And then magazines are going to become a big part of comics over the next uh, the next decade or so. And one of the most interesting things as far as the big companies is that Dell lost a lot of its licenses right around now. And actually crashed down to where as far as I can tell they were under 100 comics published for this year after having... What did we three? Thirty nine percent of the market. Yeah, they were the previous three they, years. They they were the heavy hitter. It seemed like. Yeah, yeah. Gold Key took most of those. Essentially, the company that was producing comics and licensing, or, or having uh, Dell publish them, retracted that license. They started publishing themselves under Gold Key, and Dell then sort of struggled on with a with a reduced portfolio. So, outside of that. Uh, as far as things going on, and these are mostly going to be centered on superhero stuff because that's kind of where we we focus. Right. Uh, the main thing <clears throat> to superhero fans probably for this year, outside of our man Daredevil, and to be truthful, this was pretty big just in general, is Batman was revamped pretty substantially. So we get the essentially Silver Age or the new Batman right now. They bring the yellow logo the yellow oval logo onto his chest. Okay. Change a number of things in terms of you know, making the Wayne Enterprises um, company, changing the way his household works. They bring in the, the housekeeper and replace Alfred so that it's not the, you know, um, homosexual boys club that Seduction of the Innocent had been worried about in the 50s. They wanted to make it more, uh, more acceptable that... Bruce and, and Dick were living together because they had a housekeeper watching over them. A couple of new characters DC brought in, Zatanna and Metamorpho, who are Zatanna came in in Hawkman number four, Metamorpho in Brave and Bold 57. And in a development that is not superhero, but it's one of my favorite comic books of all time, Beagle Boys number one came out in 1964. What is love, Beagle Boys? Uh, what? What? I, love I don't know Beagle what Beagle Boys. Boys are. Beagle Boys are a group of dogs who all basically look exactly the same. Sure. And they are constantly trying to steal the money out of Scrooge McDuck's money bank. <laughs> like he's got he's got his massive money bin, right? Uh -huh. It's like this huge thing. And they're constantly trying to steal from him. They all look exactly the same. They all wander around with little masks on. And sure. the only way you can tell them apart is they've each got a six-digit number on their chest. Essentially, their prison number. 
They just oh, wear it all the time because they're going I, back so soon. I think they... I've seen seen pictures, like panels or pictures of them, I think. Yep. Okay. They'd appeared before. So Beagle Boys number not one is not actually the first appearance of the Beagle Boys, but it's when they actually get their they actually get their series. And I love Beagle Boys comics. They were they were tons of fun. That's very so cool. Um, outside of that, the main thing just to note, because we did this last week and we'll probably continue, is according to the Comic Con data, uh, what they've what they've been able to get, the best selling titles that we have reports on for 1964 are Action Comics, which had 518,000 copies, uh, Archie, which about 480,000, Walt Disney's Comics and Stories, then Treasure Chest, then Flintstones, then Tarzan, Uncle Scrooge, Betty and Veronica, The Three Stooges, and rounding out the top 10 at 322,000 is Bugs Bunny. How many of those are superhero? Almost none of those, really. The, the top one, Action Comics, and that's really it. Now, there's two things I see in this. Number one is the top is a lot lower than the top was just a little bit ago. Yes. It was like a million in the one, uh, just a couple of years ago. Some of this is circulation data fluctuation, possibly. A lot of it is probably actually true. Um, one of the weird things for 1964, in fact, is, you know, when they talk about Batman being revamped, it's partly because the comic was close to being canceled because circulation had gotten so low on Batman that they weren't sure they could continue to publish it. Yeah. So, you know, but you've still got two Archie comics in there and Flintstones and Bugs Bunny. The treasure chest one's interesting because those would have been those political issues. And oh yeah. Extremely, extremely popular. So, um, as far as Marvel, yet again, Wah, 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 wah. They, you, you travel through the teens, through the 20s, head into the 30s, and as far as, again, the Comicron data goes, Strange Tales comes in at 35th in the year with an average of 215,000 on circulation. Tales to Sonish, Tales of Suspense, and Journey into Mystery then follow pretty much directly behind them. So, again, you know, we're talking about the Marvel age of comics here, but Marvel is... They're improving. You know, I think by most estimates, they're up probably 25 to 30%, maybe more, over what they were doing in 1962 or 1961. Uh, maybe almost double what they were in 1960. But they're still way behind the industry leaders. A ways to go to, to really get yeah. on, on the map or securely yeah. uh, in the top. All right, so... I guess we're going to dive in and see what Marvel starts doing in 1964 to have started that climb up with this year, with the year in Marvel. The year in Marvel. Excelsior. All right, Dan, 1964 in Marvel. There's probably a lot going on if they if they saw an increase in circulation and are starting to make that way up. And then we have a big premiere. Yep. Yeah, it's a it's a good year for Marvel. It is a little bit of a almost a consolidation year, though I'd call it, because looking at this when I was going through the the data, this is not a year where a lot of the big stuff happens. Okay. This is a year where a lot of a lot of characters who are supporting characters who are important villains later 
who essentially helped to build out the corners of the established universe, start to come in. Now, they're still important characters. I mean, there's, again, going to be a bunch of, a bunch of things that happen here that are very important to the next 60 years of Marvel Comics, to the next, you know, how, how, to all those billion-dollar-making MCU movies, all of that sort of stuff. But <laughs> it's definitely not like what I would have seen in 62 or 63 when I was looking through those. The only number one that's a real ongoing number one, like a new title, is Daredevil. Daredevil number one comes out as the only new superhero title. There are also some comic mags, cartoons and gags, Laugh Parade and Zip, all either started up or resumed publishing after a, a hiatus. There were two annuals, uh, Amazing Spider-Man annual number one and Marvel Tales annual number one. Yeah. Those are books that are Amazing um, Spider-Man Annual Number One. Actually, kind of important because it is the first appearance of the um, of the Sinister Six. So we get to see them uh, come out and and start playing. And that also is kind of that whole idea that you you start to have enough characters in the universe that you can have these massive team ups. You know, things that okay. would have been difficult to do otherwise. Yeah. There's a lot of other things, you know, comedy and jest ended, as well as Kathy, which closed off at issue number 27. Why is it important to us that Kathy ended, Dwayne? Why do we really, why do we really care about that? I have actually no idea. I'm sorry. Kathy is the book that was canceled to make room in the schedule for a little old comic named Daredevil. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Because we're we're it, still dealing with that kind of limited uh, yep. distribution right now, still correct. Yep, Marvel was able to get a little bit of an additional room, where I think they got to publish a couple more books than their previous limit of eight or whatever. But they're still under a cap, and so in order to bring Daredevil out, something had to go, and the book that ended up going was Kathy. Okay. Now, outside of that, there's a lot of things going on in the Marvel Universe kind of besides that, uh, or not outside of the Marvel Universe, say in the bullpen. We've got the debut of the Merry Marvel Marching Society, which was actually a, one of Stan Lee's sort of pet ideas to charge kids a dollar, and they would send in a dollar in an envelope, and then Marvel would send them like a membership card and a certificate, and you got like some other swag. I can't remember what it all was. It's actually up for a buck. I mean, that's a lot of money for a kid in those days. You got a yeah. lot of stuff. But it gave you kind of that ability, again, to be part of this in-group or club. And it's that whole idea Marvel's continuing to, to push to people that this is where the cool kids are at. This is a private, exclusive club. And if you're one of the ones that's smart enough to decide to be part of it, you can even have a little membership card to show sure, people and everything. Sure, right? sure. I, I remember actually seeing that at the back of, of some of the some of the books as we as yep. we get deeper after 1964, I remember seeing it at the in the in the yep. at the end of the books. Yep, and that's something that there's there's stories about like these mailbags coming in with hundreds and thousands of you know, letters <laughs> with, with one dollar in them and all of the, the people in the bullpen having to throw dollars around as they're opening them all up. And it was all manual. There's computers. Or oh, of course. Like yeah. 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 
Uh, letter columns now became standard. Uh, they were off and on in Marvel books for a long time, but they now got to the point where they were getting enough mail on a regular basis that they could populate a, a regular mail column dependably every week. And so now you do have mail columns in all of them. Uh, we had the first mention of a no prize in Fantastic Four number 26. We've talked about no prizes before. Yes. Basically, you find a problem with continuity or some situation that occurred in the comic, and you just write them a letter and call them on it, and they say, yep, you got us. Basically, here's no prize for you for doing that. Yes. And it eventually got to the point where they literally would send you an empty envelope that was your no prize. And so people would keep the envelopes because that was the prize. Sure. Yeah, it's interesting also how this shows how not only tricky, but cheap Stan Lee was. Because (laughs) over at DC, to encourage kids to put in letters, they had started a program for a while where when you wrote in a letter, they would send you original art from the comics. Wow. So there are evidently kids out there someplace. I don't know particular stories. There are kids out there who wrote letters who would then get like a page you know, Superman art or something like this sent to them. Wow. So, yeah, considering what some of that stuff is worth now, people were getting like $50,000 to write those letters or something <laughs> like that. So, yes. But back then, I mean, original art had very little value. So it was, it was just kind of a, a neat thing to do. So there also were, and this actually would be probably more under comics, but the first all-comic fanzine, uh, CAPA Alpha, Begin publication by Jerry Bales. Um, fanzines would then be a place where you know people could write in, they could uh, do letters, they could do essays, they could put in art, and then it would all kind of be published. And that's one of the things that helped to expand the developing fan base. And 1964 was the first New York City Comic Con, where Marvel did attend as well. And so, wow. yeah, and that that New York Comic Con was generally considered to be the first actual convention because you had participation by the companies, all of them and everything. There have been small ones. I don't know. You can ever say which one's actually first because there's so many different criterion people can put on it. But if someone had to choose one, I think a lot of people would go with that as the first, the first um, real quote unquote uh, comic convention. All right. So should we talk about, some of the characters that got introduced or some big things that occurred in comics at Marvel in 1964. It was a, it was a good year, but again, um, it was a year where they sort of expanded things rather than went crazy. A lot of the characters that debuted this year were villains. Interestingly, a lot of them didn't stay villains, but that's where they started. So Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver came in in the X-Men and they were, they were villains in the, Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, or the Brotherhood of Mutants. Black Widow and Hawkeye came in, uh, and they as well uh, were villains. Uh, Simon Williams, or Giant Man, came in in the Avengers books. And then Daredevil, yes. Yep, and along with that, you know, we've got a lot of supporting characters. Uh, You've got Foggy Nelson, Karen Page, of course. Clea from Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange, yeah. Uh, Sif. From Thor. Yes. There's also a ton of other characters. So I'm not going to even try and get all of that. But as far as like um, supporting characters within, 
Yeah. As far as big events, Captain America being unfrozen in Avengers number four, pretty major. So that's the 1964 is when Captain America returns to the Marvel Universe from the ice, essentially. And this is his first Silver Age appearance. Um, other new villains would be Electro, Mandarin, Baron Von Strucker, the Enchantress, Craven, and Kang. And if you think of that list, a lot of those are primary villains of Spider-Man, yes. Iron Man, Captain America, Thor. So some pretty big, some pretty big characters there. Yeah. The other interesting thing is that that story about um, Sergeant Fury, where they do have a racist soldier who actually is brought into the team, uh, ends up being there very temporarily because everybody pretty much dislikes him. But you've got you know a Jewish character and a character who he's terrible to at the beginning and says he's not going to serve in a unit with him in the list and in the end they end up saving him the black ends up giving him blood they never really do resolve it it's it's not a as canned a, a resolution as you'd like but i think it's interesting that you do have lee way back in 1964 starting to already hit on some of these notes of wanting to tell some stories that have a little bit more social relevance yeah no, that is that is great to see, and and it's not going to be the first time, or it probably wasn't the first time, and definitely isn't going to be the last time. Might have been the first time. It might have been it the first. Might be the last. Yeah, time. yeah. <laughs> I suppose that. It yeah, it was it was enough just to have an integrated uh, team in uh, in Sergeant Fury and Holding Commandos in the first few, but um, they went a little farther here. So it's sure. baby steps, doing what they can. What is what is the bullpen look like for Marvel at this time? So the bullpen itself, I mean, obviously there's staffers, there's production people, there's all sorts of that. I don't have a great take on exactly all of that. I am looking for more information on that. Once we get to the 70s, I have a better read on some of those things. There's a couple of okay. sites I can use. But as of right now, as in terms of who is working on the books... Uh, comics, the Grand Comics database has 25 creators credited as working on the core Marvel books. So not talking about the the funny books or some of the other things that they're publishing, you know, the romance books, but the ones that are, are the Marvel Comics uh, superhero line or, or ones associated with that. 25 creditors or creators in 1964. Most of them were the same folks that we were talking about last week. There are four new people working. So we've got Chick Stone, who is a commercial artist and penciler who'd been working with other publishers for a long time. When he came to work for Marvel, it was primarily because he saw Jack Kirby's pencils and said, man, that's brilliant. I would love to ink that. Sure. And, and he, he even admitted that he didn't really make enough money to make it worthwhile half the time, but he just wanted to do it because it was so cool, right? Okay. Which, if you've got the talent to ink Jack Kirby and you do it well, why wouldn't you do it if you can, I guess? But he didn't He didn't do a ton of, of uh, work for them compared to some other folks, but he is somebody who a lot of people really like his inking on Kirby. He did a nice job. We've also got Don Rico, who's a writer and artist. Uh, from the 40s and 50s. He also wrote some novels and screenplays. 
It's interesting that he's on this list as one of the new faces, but he actually only wrote three stories total for Marvel. Really? So he he's not in for very long. Uh, interesting, though, one of them that he's credited on is Tales of Suspense number 52, where it appears he helped to co-create the Black Widow. Oh. So he didn't want to be... Uh, to have his his regular name, his Don Rico name, used on comic books because he thought that would, you know, diminish his his standing. So he is credited uh-huh. as N as N Korak. Probably now his heirs would be just fine with him being credited <laughs> as sure, creator yeah. of of Black Widow. But that's uh, that's the way that goes. Uh, Mori Kuramato mostly worked behind the scenes for Marvel for a long time, uh, actually from now 1964 and maybe i think even before 64 but this was his first credit he he lettered tales to astonish number 55 so he only had one book he worked on as a creator this year but he worked with marvel right up until his death uh in 1985 seems like he may have retired a year or so before his death or he may have still been employed there when when he died so he's a he is a Pretty much a lifer at Marvel Comics, kind of like Stan Lee. Sure. And then, lastly, we've got George Tesca. He's 48 years old when he joined up with the company. Uh, he had been working in comics and doing a bunch of stuff for ages. He started in 1964 for Marvel, drawing issue number 58 of Tales of Suspense. He didn't make much of an impact this year, but he goes on to be the primary penciler on Iron Man for nearly a decade Starting with issue number five and ending with one hundred and five, so wow. this is a guy who started in comics in in nineteen thirties, like in nineteen thirty nine, basically at the same time as all of the other legends. Uh, he worked with a uh, with Will Eisner or in Will Eisner's studio, uh, where they were packaging up strips and stuff like this. And he actually lived to be ninety three, and as far as I can tell, um, his last work was a variant cover published in 2009, just a few months before his death. So if that's the wow. case, worked on published comics for 70 years. Wow. Which is kind of crazy. So, yeah. so we're going to, each week, I'm going to challenge myself to name a, a Rookie of the Year and hopefully be uh, sending up a, a baseball card uh, on, on social media to honor them. For this week, it's got to be George Tesco. A 48-year-old rookie is kind of a little odd, but he still has 45 years of, of good comics in him. So yeah. uh, I think I think he's a worthy uh, option. I really love George Tuska, too. His art is something that some people really enjoy, some don't. It is very workmanly. Like, he's not somebody who's a big comic stylist or anything like that. But he was very dependable. He was a good storyteller. And just from the fact that he was there forever, his Iron Man is sort of stuck in my head. That that very sort of blocky Iron Man with the big cutout mouth, that is George Tuska. He basically owned Iron Man for the better part of a decade. And so going back, reading through all of that stuff, and you know when I was starting, Iron Man was around 150. So a lot of the old books I was going and getting were in this 50 to 100 range. There was a lot of Tuska in there. So, yeah. Very cool. Congratulations, George, on your Rookie of the Year award. Yes. 
any any final thoughts uh on marvel before we move into daredevil um well just that in something that thinks going to be a little un, uh unusual there are no real departures nobody left marvel uh particularly in 1964 and we will put our credits our table listing the top creators up on the web uh dan lee again had the most credits quote unquote uh, as writer and editor Artie simic was the primary letterer along with Sam Rosen. Uh, Sam Goldberg was the primary colorist for the year. Also had a lot by George Russo. As far as the pencilers, the guys drawing things were Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, Don Heck, and maybe a little bit of Paul Reinman. I'm not particularly sure if he was doing any of that this year. As far as the inkers, you've got Dick Ayers, George Russo, Don Heck, Stone. All right, should we move into our Should we move into talking about Daredevil now? We've been teasing it all episode. Absolutely. That sounds wonderful. The year in Daredevil. So now we're going to kind of change places because Dwayne, you've been uh taking a look at Daredevil, getting us ready. What do you what do you got for Daredevil and what did you think of this after going in and reading through some of these stories? All right, so Daredevil starts out in 1964 in April actually and and there are five issues that get published during 1964. He also has two other appearances outside of the main Daredevil run in Amazing Spider-Man number 16 as well as number 18. I would note that the the main Daredevil series, these five books, were all written by Stanley or credited to Stanley as the writer. But there were three different artists that appeared on, on these books. Bill Everest was issue number one. Joe Orlando did issues two through four. And Wallace Wally Wood actually gets issue five. And in that issue, they thank Everett and Orlando and talk about Willie... Uh, Wally Wood being the new permanent artist for Daredevil going forward. So we're going to see more of Wally Wood in 1965 as we move forward. I would also note that in that issue, there's an editor's note that said Wood redesigned portions of the costume for issue five. But I have to tell you, in looking at those versus some of the earlier books, I couldn't really notice any difference in the costume itself. So if you have any specifics on that, Dan, uh, feel free to, to tell us what those are. So, yeah, the I mean, Wood is going to redo the character costume a, a bit soon again. Like, he's going to introduce the red iconic costume we come to know. Yes. But in this yes. one, I think... There may have been some changes to the boots and stuff, but I think the main one is if you look at issue four and before, Daredevil has one D in the middle of his costume. And as of issue five, you've now got the, the, the double iconic D. Yeah. interlock Ds that are going to be his signature going forward. Okay. It's almost that... like a logo change as much as a costume change. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. All right, so the April 1964 issue is the Daredevil origin story. It is... Pretty heavily marketed, actually, because they've got mentions of Spider-Man uh, on the title page and, and talking about how, congratulations, you picked up the next big superhero mm -hmm. comic, uh, just like Spider-Man. And so 
It's really interesting. In this, Matt Murdock gets hit by a truck of chemicals as he tries to save a blind man from being hit by said truck. After that, he finds that his, uh, he, he ends up going blind as a result of it and has been like working out on his own and realizes that uh, his other sentence has senses have heightened to make up for his lack of sight. Uh, and then he ends up putting those senses, all of them, to good use when his dad, Jack Badlin Murdoch, is killed by the fixer and his accomplice Slade. Uh, he goes out to avenge his father, ends up in this first issue, taking, fi finding, going after the fixer's men, then going after the fixer and finding out during that battle where he causes the, the fixer to have a heart attack in the subway that Slade is the one that actually pulled the trigger and Slade's the one that ends up going to jail. Daredevil, it should be noted, was a nickname given to him by other kids when he was young. And it was actually sort of a derogatory kind of nickname, but he he took it and owned it uh, when he became this uh, punching vigilante uh, on the on the streets. So that was really interesting first issue. In that issue, we also see him meeting Foggy Nelson, and right after they graduate college, we have Nelson and Murdoch starting their own law firm. Karen Page joins them as their assistant. Throughout the rest of the year, we have crossovers with other heroes and villains. We have Thing in the Fantastic Four making an appearance in, in book two, as well as a crossover villain in Electro, who originally appeared in Spider-Man number nine, and they referenced that in the, in the beginning of the issue. So right away, they're trying to do an extra kind of pumping up of, of this title. Most of these stories, these first five are single single book stories that involve Daredevil taking down a villain while hiding the fact that he is Daredevil from his friends and colleagues, uh, Nelson and Page. A couple other quick notes is you mentioned the letters column. They're the first letters column appeared in issue number four. And at the end of issue five, the, the first Wally Wood issue, we have a full page pinup of Daredevil, which... I think was really cool. It's just a full page panel that you could presumably mm -hmm. take out of the comic and hang up on the wall. So those were kind of the things that happened in, in the first year of Daredevil in 1964. We talk, if we, if we talk about some of the new powers, toys, uh, and places in issue one, they talk about, these heightened senses and they talked about the fact that as a result of these chemicals and that he ended up getting super hearing talking about being able to hear a heartbeat in a room super smell never forgets an odor and can track it like like a like a like a dog like a bloodhound type, type of situation and in fact that's how he yep. tracks the fixer is the fixer's smell in the first issue yep it's got sensitive fingers. He can read the newspaper just by the typeface on the page, as well as a highly developed sense of taste, saying that he could tell exactly how many grains of salt were on a pretzel. As, as we go on through the year, they talk about his radar sense, which is the ability to find a person or 
like figure out where things are located in a room and that and talked about being able to find any person he's looking for if he can get within a city block of them which i think is absolutely crazy if you think about new york and and all that um we have the introduction of the special cane as it's called in issue one it ends up being called kind of a billy club a little bit later on has a flexible handle with a hinge in the middle that he can then sheath and by issue four, it has a spy type recorder in it, which plays really into the spotlight issue that we're going to talk about in just a second. Supporting characters that we see throughout this, we have Matt's dad, Jack Badlin Murnock, Franklin Foggy Nelson, his friend and college roommate, Karen Page, the assistant for Nelson and Murnock, and proves to be a love interest for both guys pretty much right from the start. We also have an appearance by the Fantastic, several members, pretty much the entire Fantastic Four uh, in issue two. New villains, all the villains are new because these are the first issues. We have Roscoe Sweeney, aka The Fixer, Slade, which is the accomplice of The Fixer who pulled the trigger on Matt Murdock's father. We have Electro, The Owl, The Purple Man, and The Masked Matador are the new villains that we saw during these. All right, Dan. Electro that actually, Electro had been around before. Yes, he yes, it's new, new, new villain to Daredevil to a Daredevil ah. book is is how I'm categorizing that. So perfect. All right, Dan. Before we jump into the spotlight, is there anything you want to add? Anything important things for Daredevil during the year that I may have missed, or or different uh, powers, toys, supporting characters? I think to me it, it's behind the scenes stuff, but to me the interesting thing is that this book was supposed to come out a year ago. That Daredevil was originally scheduled for 1963, and it was given to Bill Everett, but he actually had a full-time job. And back then, if you had a full-time job, they expected you to work like 18 hours a day. So <laughs> he was trying to somehow or another work that job and do this comic. Was unable to get it all done in time and to keep up with the schedule. So it just got way behind, and they eventually ended up giving the Avengers book the Daredevil slot. Once that happened, then Everett never was able to catch up. He sort of just you know, said, yeah, you better find somebody else. They got Orlando in for a little while. Wood took over as the quote-unquote permanent artist and immediately sort of started fighting with Stan Lee about the same sort of thing that Kirby and Ditko do, which is creator credit, right? Because uh -huh. by this time, Lee was doing his Marvel method. And, you know, Wood is new there. He comes in and Lee tells him what the Marvel method is. And he's, he basically says, so I'm writing the comic book and drawing it. Why did you get a writer credit? And Lee, you know, Lee's like, hey, I got to eat too. Well, Wood's like, that's not my problem. You're the, you know, I'm, I'm writing it. So there is a writer credit he gets eventually. But... This is a really jangled introduction of a character, and it's amazing it works out as well as it does overall. Bill Everett's art is really different than most of the Marvel Universe art at this time, too. I don't know if you noticed, but it feels 1950-ish, almost 1940-ish to me. It's very angular people, and it looks like one of the old Gangbusters comics from the 1940s or something like that, more than more than Marvel in the 60s. So I actually think that while I love Bill Everett art, and again, he's the guy who created the Submariner 
back in 39 and the like. He's a legend of comics. I, I actually think it's probably better for the book that they waited a year, got a new artist. Uh, you know, even, even the fact that Wally Wood getting on there and deciding he didn't like the costume, the costume he's going to come up with for us next year is a much better yeah. option than what we had before, I believe. So yeah. it, it's interesting how it worked out, but I think it was for the best. This week's Spotlight Story. All right, Dan, the spotlight, as we've talked about last week, is going to be a feature story, feature book, or featured storyline from the year that I think is kind of indicative of what happened during the year. And uh, we're going to do a little recap of it, and then I'll tell you a little bit about why I picked this issue. And so we're going to pick Daredevil, issue number four, October 1964. In this, we are introduced to the Purple Man, who immediately robs a bank just by asking the teller for money. Upon leaving, the teller notifies the police and the Purple Man is captured. The, the Murdoch and Nelson law firm then get assigned to be his lawyer. Murdoch, along with Karen Page, meet with the Purple Man, who we, are, who we learn is named Kilgrave, in prison. Kilgrave says he doesn't need a lawyer and asks the guards to release him, which they do, and asks Karen Page to join him, which she does. Murdoch, as Daredevil, gives chase, and after confronting them on the street, the Purple Man asks the crowd of citizens that have gathered around to attack Daredevil, which allows him and his willing hostage Karen Page to escape. He then heads to a gymnasium to recruit some muscle-bound bodyguards, then heads to the Ritz Plaza Hotel and takes up residence on the top floor, kicking out everyone that had been staying there. Meanwhile, Daredevil, getting away from the crowd on the street, devises a plan to, to record Kilgrave and capture him. That's when we get the spy-type recorder, as it seems he's the only one that's not affected by the Purple Man's powers of persuasion. Daredevil heads to the hotel and fights his way through the bodyguards with punches and one-liners while Kilgrave and Page head to the roof. When Daredevil joins them, we learn about Kilgrave's power, how Kilgrave got his powers and how his purple skin causes people to just obey him, all of which has now been recorded by Daredevil. He grabs Page and jumps from the roof, landing on some scaffolding on the side of the building. When Kilgrave meets Daredevil and Page outside the hotel. Daredevil quickly covers him in what is described as chemically treated plastic sheet, but looks just like any old standard sheet like you'd see in a comic book or on any cartoon before he's able to use his powers again and is captured and sent to jail. So that is Daredevil number four in its entirety. And I, I really liked this book. I, I liked the art. I liked the story. It was a lot happens in just 20 pages as you, as you hear from the recap. But I think the thing that jumped out to me first and foremost is the name Kilgrave. I recognize the name Kilgrave from another series. Dan, you, you must know what series I'm talking about, right? Oh yeah. I, I watched it. It was, it was kind of messed up. The Jessica Jones series with Kilgrave makes him, just a really, really gut-wrenchingly difficult to watch villain. Yes, he is, he's a lot. He's a lot more 
whimsical here. Let's put it that way. There yes. are no people putting their hands in blenders or anything like that in Daredevil number four. So yeah. Yes, yes. But but this is presumably the first this is the first introduction of the character, to my understanding. Yep, this is the first appearance of of Kilgrave slash Purple Man. Yeah, so I, I loved that. Yes, the Jessica Jones TV series, David Tennant was the, the, the guy who played it there. And yes, so the, the name immediately struck out to me, so I, I wanted to talk about this. A couple other things. There is a lot of narration boxes in these first five books. I mean, pretty much every panel has a narration box to it. There is a lot of text in these books that they took like a half an hour to read each each issue. And so it's it's interesting. I, I think that's kind of Stan's way though, Dan. Yeah, you would think he's getting paid by the word because he just fills everything. It's kind of the way comics were back then though too. They they really were just in general designed in a way where, you know, now there is a almost a a mania with you show you don't tell, both in movies and in comic books where if you can use a glance or a gesture or an action to show what a person's thinking or what they're doing that is considered to be better than sort of the cheap way of just having a box that says hey this is what they're thinking or this is what they're they're doing back in the day and partly because these were being made for kids the idea was that you you didn't want to trust to the subtle, you know, subtle nod. You would have the subtle nod maybe, and then there'd be two sentences of explanation telling you what it meant up, yeah. up above. So that, you know, it would be very hard to miss what's going on. And, I mean, that's one of the major differences between older comic books and newer ones, is the lack of narration bubbles or narration boxes and the, the lack of thought bubbles for the most part. There are very few yeah. comics these days that do thought bubbles. Speaking of thought bubbles, there there's an issue coming up. I don't remember which one it exactly is, but Stan Lee, as an editor's note, in the panel, like gives himself an award for having seven thought bubbles in the same panel. So it's uh he's like, I don't think I could cram any more words in, into into this panel. So I I Yeah. I yeah. To give you some idea of what you were in store for. Uh, talked about Karen Page along with Foggy and Matt Murdock. This love triangle really starts like immediately. At, by the end of issue one, you get hints of it, but it is full blown. Both of these two are head over heels for Karen Page by issue five. And she's kind of in love with matt murdoch as well as dare like is infatuated with daredevil because she's been saved by daredevil a couple times already as well and th this goes on for some time as as i'm currently reading ahead but it, it's interesting to me that like that that storyline kind of s started right at the first book and basically just goes right from there yeah that's pretty much it's it's kind of a love triangle, but really it's almost more like a V in that it's you've got Foggy in love with or trying to see if he can find a way to date Karen Page. Page is infatuated with Matt Murdock. Murdock is like, oh, I can't go out with her because what if 
my enemies find out I'm Daredevil and then, you know. So he's kind of the end of this. He is in love with her as well, though. But he yeah. just won't let himself do anything about it. And so yeah. it's it's a disaster. And she's constantly trying to fix him, too. So yes. this is that, that idea that she's like, if I can only find a way to get him to understand, or if I can find a way to get him to a doctor to get his vision back, and then we can be together or whatever. And, of course, with him, it's not his vision at all. It's that he doesn't want to, you know, it's the Spider-Man thing of not wanting to get involved because what if his enemies found out and everything else. So, but yeah, it uh, it doesn't end anytime soon, I'm sad to say. <laughs> no, it, no, it does not. <laughs> La- last thing I'll note is there's a lot of shots about Matt Murdock being blind across these books, and it continues on throughout all this. Uh, a note from the end of one of the books, Foggy Nelson says, there goes one of the greatest guys in the world. Sure is a pity he's blind. Yep. And and like even Murdoch himself is like, boy, they wouldn't believe it if they knew it was a blind guy that was doing this sort of thing. And and it's just, it it feels weird now reading it. You know, we, I don't, I don't think of it as a you know obviously he has a disability but it's not something that's keeping him from functioning in society and in fact he's being a superhero as a result of it but they there's kind of this look down on matt murdoch and pitying of matt murdoch that occurs because he's blind and it it starts in these books and it continues through for for some time it looks like because because i'm i'm couple years ahead here yeah it's weird though because that is the case that you know there there is a lot of the sort of of especially from karen page lamenting at the fact that you know this is terrible for matt murdoch that he's blind but i think that the fact that in actual fact he's the most capable guy in the book and he doesn't ever feel sorry for himself no. About again, when he's when he's not able to have Karen, it's not because of the fact he's blind, it's because of the fact that he's got this mission that's getting in the way. Right. Foggy also repeatedly, and you see this in a lot of the TV shows too, is is essentially constantly jealous of the fact that Matt's the one that gets the girls, Matt's the one that is the better lawyer. We don't really know I don't know why Foggy is even there half the time. Right. It's it's his parents' money that made him be able to open the law firm. That's about the only thing it feels like he's brought to the table so far. That would be the reason. This week's takeaway. So the crazy thing about this, and I think it's something to deal with immediately when you're talking about Daredevil, is that what Stan Lee did with this character was something he recognized was inherently dangerous. And there's a quote from him, actually. Uh, he said, the one thing that worried me about Daredevil, I wondered if blind people would be offended because we were exaggerating so much what a blind person can do, and they might have felt that we're making it ridiculous. But I was so pleased. After the books were published, we started getting letters from charities for blind people, like Lighthouse for the Blind in New York. Letters saying, we've been reading these stories to the people here and they love them, and they're so pleased you have a superhero who is sightless. And oh boy, that made me feel great. Even when he died, the American Foundation for the Blind essentially had a 
like a, a write-up on him as well. Basically saying, you know, thanks Stan Lee for giving this character to the blame community. So it's interesting because comic books you would think would be a difficult medium to translate for a blind audience. But mm. as you move along through the books, there's something about Daredevil comics as well that I think is different from any other book Marvel publishes. As you go through, you will see certain times with the sound effects where there's actually a phonetic pronunciation of them. Yep, I remember seeing I remember seeing that in a couple of times or or a note saying, "Hey, that first letter, you don't say the first letter in this sound effect." So they were yep. giving giving some notes to people if they were trying to read them out loud. Yep, and I think that really that was an an understanding by Lee or whoever was writing it that these were books more than any other Marvel comic that were meant to be written in a way that the story could be relayed orally. And so very kind of interesting. I think that it was a dangerous thing to try, but I think the other thing is that even when Karen page is attempting to get him to get his sight back by like going off to this doctor and whatever, yeah. he's, he's actually resistant. He's like, well, what if I lose my powers? You know, being blind, isn't that big of a deal to me. If I've got all these powers that I can help people with. So I think, you know, the fact that he himself doesn't look at it as a substantial or, or a handicap worth, um, you know, risking his powers for. The other thing that's cool about Daredevil is he's not a hero because he's blind. He was a hero before he was blind. He's, he's blind because he's a hero, right? Right. Because as a kid, he ran out to save that guy and then ended up losing his sight. So it's just an extension of who he was before. Is yeah. that he's always going to be a hero. The blindness really is largely irrelevant to who he is as a person. It just is another thing that he has to deal with, like every other Marvel character has problems to deal with. You know? And by turning it into something that you deal with and you you and you overcome and you live your life, I think that it really resonated with a lot of blind folks. And seems to have been something that, you know, could have gone horribly wrong that in fact ended up being something that becomes part of his legacy for a decent part of of the population that's going to put a wrap on this week's show we'd like to thank you for joining us if you're new to the podcast please consider subscribing on your podcast player of choice that way you'll get each new episode as soon as it's released if you've already subscribed we'd appreciate it if you'd share the show via social media or leave us a review that will help new listeners find the show much easier whether you're new to the podcast or you've been with us from the beginning, we'd love to get your thoughts about this week's show. You can send those to us via email at comments at comicsovertime.com or via Twitter or Blue Sky. We're at Comics Overtime there. Until next week, take care, everybody.